Welcome to Winning the Game of Life. Known as Jungle Man at the poker table, Dan Cates has gone from being the bag boy at McDonald's with no friends and a dead-end future to winning over $11 million in online poker, over $7 million in live tournaments, and is a World Series of Poker champion. He has found fame, fortune, been to incredible places all over the globe, and connected with some amazing people. It looks like Dan has won the game of life, but that is not the way he sees it. Dan sees winning as doing his part to help everyone in the world win. He knows he can't do it alone, though. He knows it's going to take a collective effort with anyone that wants to see the same thing. Join us each week as Dan starts the conversation to do just that. On the show, Dan will interview incredible individuals that have made the impossible possible. Those that have won the game of life and those that want to help others win as well. Hit subscribe and follow Dan's journey on Instagram at TheDanCates. Let's explore anyone and anything that can help make this world a better place, increasing the odds of us all winning the game of life. And now, here's your host, Dan Cates. All right, guys, today I have with us a special guest who has played in Big Black, who's most well known for playing in Big Black and Shellac, and has worked on over a thousand albums, including Nirvana, The Pixies, and more. Uh, and has been heavily involved in the alternative music scene. Um, Steve Albini, what's up? Not very much. There's a global pandemic underway. Oh, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. That explains why there's not much of it. Well, you know, we're going to, we'll see about that. Yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Steve. How'd you get started in music? Um, I was sort of, awakened into music by discovering punk rock through the Ramones in the late 1970s when I was in high school. And I started a band with my friends. Uh, I was at the time I was living in Montana. Um, and uh, I left Montana to go to college in Chicago at Northwestern University. And when I came here, I kind of insinuated myself into the music scene here and in the, into the punk rock underground here. Mm -hmm. And um, by through being in bands and being surrounded by other people in bands, uh, I got involved in recording and a bunch of other aspects of musical culture. And I just pursued recording because it was the thing that I had the most aptitude for. And eventually my circle of friends became a very wide sort of clientele. And uh, I had enough work to do it professionally. And that's what I've done ever since. Yeah, cool. So you're you became so uh, popular among your friends that they just started paying money. Is that how it worked? <laughs> well, I started asking them to pay. No, like nobody pays you without asking. So uh, in the beginning, I was doing I was just a, another guy in, in the scene, and everybody was doing everything sort of you know fraternally and cooperatively and collaboratively. So I was doing recordings for people for free pretty regularly. And that helped me as well, build my skill set and give me some experience. Um, I didn't start actually charging for my time until the late 1980s. Um, and I charged, I was quite modest about it just because I didn't really feel like I was a credentialed professional. Um, and then after I had made a few records and some of those records had gotten some notoriety, 
then I started to treat it more like a job and I, I quit my straight job and um, committed to being a recording engineer full-time. That was about 1980, I wanna say 1988. Okay. Yeah, actually, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself like, what is the point where a, someone who's playing in a band becomes like a professional musician? Um, well, it's like, like most things, you don't notice that it's happened. It's like you have a job and you're playing music on the side uh, or, and you're doing all these other things. Like in my case, making recordings of other people on the side. And then eventually it's become, become such a demand on your time <clears throat> and the money that you're making from it is enough to supplant the work that you're missing on, on account of it that you just give up on the job part and carry on doing the other stuff. Yeah. Something like that happened with me in poker too. It wasn't like, yeah, I guess it, there's no point where you really have like a label unless you sign with some kind of label that's that will pay you a lot of money or something. I don't know how it works in music. I know that you do not like a lot of the major, you do not uh, appreciate a lot of the music industry. And that's one thing you're really well known for is your opinion that many of the production companies and music uh, gouge a lot of artists. Well, the, I, I just think it's important to recognize that the, the greater music industry doesn't operate for the benefit of the bands that are the sort of uh, engine that are driving it, that's driving it. The yeah. relationship between the band and the audience is where all the money comes from. And the greater music industry exists to sort of extract money from that relationship uh, and thereby weakening that relationship and making that relationship less efficient between the band and the audience. Mm -hmm. uh, I should say that in the Internet era, there are a lot more like more direct, more immediate ways for bands to have a, to carry on a relationship with their audience where their things are operating on a much more efficient level in that regard, like bands sell their merchandise directly to their audience as opposed to going through a merchandising company or going through, um, okay. you know, tour marketing and that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of bands have pretty good control over the distribution of their music. Like they can, whenever they have something new they want to put out, they can put out, uh, put it out on Bandcamp or YouTube or uh, <clears throat> any of these other, any of the other sites that allow them some direct control over the release of their music. They don't necessarily have to be beholden to a record label. Uh, okay. So things have improved in that regard in terms of the access to the audience. But um, the important thing to remember is that the, the record labels, the management companies, the lawyers, the, like the greater music business exists for its own benefit. It doesn't exist for the benefit of the musicians or the audience. Okay, I've got a few questions about that. So first of all, simple question, I think. Uh, would iTunes and a Spotify and like similar apps like that qualify as um, more direct uh, ways for the consumers to get access to the music? Yes and no. Like iTunes uh, is somewhat encumbered by being part of the Apple paradigm and that operates as a near vertical monopoly. Um, Spotify is uh, a part of a, a trust essential relation essentially a trust relationship with the major labels whereby when spotify makes money the major labels who are shareholders in spotify make money and so it's in their best interest it's in everyone's best interest not to pay the bands very much yeah. um so the, the those are <clears throat> avenues of access like you can 
get your music out to an audience through those vehicles. And uh, they're quite efficient in that regard, but they're the getting a return from them is meager. Like you don't get, you don't get paid very much for streaming. Uh, and that's probably not going to change. Um, I think the streaming model is a kind of a stopgap toward uh, some future model where music access is kind of universally free, uh, at which point there won't be any money changing hands. So in the, in the moment, um, Spotify is extracting quite a bit of value from the, <clears throat> the data that they're gleaning, the audience that they, that the bands capture. And, <clears throat> and that money is, <clears throat> that money is being um, shared with the, the record labels that were part of the old like sales model paradigm of music business. But the artists themselves don't receive a, a, a very, very, very modest amount. And in a lot of cases, they receive nothing at all because their relationships with their parent record labels allow the record labels to sort of capture all of that money. Um, there, there are some other, there are other smaller sites. There's a site called Bandcamp, for example, where bands can sell directly to their audience and Bandcamp takes a small percentage. Um, and, there, and Bandcamp even regularly ha, um, has these sort of fee amnesty days where they allow bands to sell directly to the audience and take no commission whatsoever. Mm. Um, those are called Bandcamp Friday and they're generally pretty well advertised. Those are the most direct way for you to support a band at the moment. Um, but, there, but then also bands have an online presence themselves and you can buy records directly from them on their website or you can um, you know, interact with them on their uh, Facebook or, or I mean uh, Twitter or Instagram accounts. And uh, you, know, you can sometimes get access to things like tickets and early notice of shows and that sort of stuff by being part of a more direct relationship with the artist that way. Okay. Uh, one question is, does, this, do, does the record labels taking such a cut end up hurting uh, the music industry on the whole at, at some level? Well, it sort of depends on what you mean by the music industry. If you mean, do the people taking all the money get harmed by taking all the money, I'm going to say no, they're, you know, they're getting all the money. Um, but the ecosystem, people taking the money, (laughs) the the ecosystem of, uh, an active music scene that then, uh, is monetized in some way by, uh, record labels and, uh, streaming services and, um, licensing their material for use in films and movies and commercials and um, that sort of stuff like that that ecosystem is all sort of predicated on there being bands that are active and having a, a fervent audience and that by and large now comes from two places it comes from having a sort of a viral success in the online world uh, and it comes from relentless live touring uh, during the pandemic, the touring dried up pretty significantly, but it's starting to pick back up again uh, as people start to go back out on tour again. But the the principal income now, the principal, the lifeblood of the music scene now is live shows. It, it used to be in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that when you said you were involved in the music business, what you meant was that you were in the record business or potentially in, involved in radio or video promotion or something like that. But selling records was where the money was. 
Sure. And that's not true anymore. Um, now, uh, and, and at that point in the 70s, 80s, 90s, touring was a secondary income stream, uh, not primary, except for those bands that had essentially no, you know, like legacy bands who are surviving just on a touring circuit. Um, but now touring is where the bread, that, that's the bread and butter gig for every musician now. Okay, that's interesting. That's actually really interesting. I wouldn't have expected that, but it- Well, what's, what's, to me, the most interesting aspect of it is that previously during the, during the physical media era, when people were selling records and tapes and CDs and stuff, um, the sale price of records, of LP records and then CDs, uh, the sale price kept escalating and going up and up and up. And so the cost of buying music kept getting higher and higher and the profit margins kept getting wider and wider. And so the record companies were making more and more money. Mm -hmm. um, gig prices were fairly stable, like uh, a, a gig in the 1960s or 1970s, like a club gig would be a couple of bucks. And that remained true through the 80s. And then into the 90s, a club gig was, you know, five, ten dollars. And uh, and now because gigging is the principal source of income, the entire market has just sort of agreed yeah, we're just going to pay a lot more for live shows now. So now when you go see a band, even at a local venue, the cover charge for going to see a band at a local venue can be $20, $24, sometimes as much as $30 or $35. And that's that's part of this shift is that there's been a kind of a, a, a communal agreement within the music scene that we're not going to be buying records anymore. So when we go to a gig, we're going to expect to pay a lot more to go to a gig and that has shifted the economy toward a touring and touring as the principal um, breadwinner for most musicians okay yeah that's, i guess it, it to me it sounds like basically the price of authenticity has gone up with uh everything becoming more interconnected is, is that accurate uh it i'm 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 not sure what you mean by the word authenticity, but if you mean the, like having a direct relationship with the artist where like you're seeing a real performance by a person or you're having a direct, some sort of a direct communion with the artist where they're communicating with you directly and selling you some something directly and that's your means of supporting them. Um, those avenues are a lot more direct now. And I think the aggregate cost is probably about the same. Like it's about costs about the same to like join somebody's Patreon as it does to like buy record, a record from them or something like that, you know, it costs about the same to go to a gig as it used to, to, you know, buy a CD or whatever. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I want to get back at this, uh, to this topic just because I think, um, I think it's interesting, but I also want to talk a bit more about your career and also, uh, also a little bit about your interest in poker, for example, um, and like if that pertains at all to music. Uh, back to your career, how did you, I, given that you are not, um, you do not support many of the major labels and all that, how did you find a way to have success in the music industry? Uh, I mean, there are kind of two paradigms on, on one and one paradigm is that you work on a couple of hit records and you extract a royalty from those records. And then those few hit records will pay you for life. Like that's one way of looking at, at that's like one model for how to make a career out of music. 
Um, you work on a small number of records, those records are extremely successful and they just pay you in perpetuity. The other way of doing it is just to make a shit million records and you make a small amount of money on each of them. And, and the, over time, if you just through persistence, if you stay at it, you can make a living at it. And that's the way I've gone about it. I just I make records all the time. I'm making records okay. you know, every essentially every day that I'm working, I'm making a record. OK, I get a question about that. So uh, in my mind, like I don't know really what the. I mean, I would imagine even the artists that are making the records don't really know what will make them go viral. So I would think that the method of making a ton of records would be better just because like eventually, you know, in terms of randomness, uh, because of randomness, you'd make yeah. something. That the law of large fun. numbers means that eventually I'm going to work on some popular records. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with you, but the I also, I also like, and the Pixies, uh, yeah. So, but, but also I enjoy the work, you know, I, I had a session yesterday. I finished a record yesterday. I had a session the day before I finished a record that, that day, tomorrow I start work on a three day set. Uh, no, I do have a one day session tomorrow. I'm going to do a record tomorrow. Um, on, on Thursday, I start a three day session and I'll finish a record on Sunday. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a constant flow of constant stream of work. And I, I'm not making a killing on any of these records. I'm getting paid like, you know, like a working stiff. I'm, I'm working with my hands. I'm getting paid for my, my time. And uh, it, it, in my mind, it's no different from any other trade in that regard. Like I have skills that I can apply to your project in the same way that a plumber or a carpenter does. And I value my time based on how much it's time I'm, I'm gonna have to spend on the project. And when it's over with, I hope you're happy. Um, but I've been paid for the for the work I've done, and that's that's how it goes. And that that to me seems like a perfectly reasonable way to approach this kind of work. Um, but there is a, there there is a sort of a dominant paradigm where people, when, if someone in my position is working on your record, they're going to expect to participate in all of the income that comes out of that record because they're like, you know, like they consider their contribution that significant. And I just don't consider my contribution to be that significant. I don't feel like I'm, you know, I don't think that me working on your record rather than somebody else is the consequential difference between whether your record is good or not. Sure. I, I, I just feel like I'm a competent professional and I can do a good job and I charge a reasonable amount. So uh, you're getting your money's worth. Okay. Um, Say when you when you deign to to drop your album, you know, if you hire me to work on your album, I'll exert I'll, I will work just as hard on the Daniel Cates album as I worked on, say, the Pixies album or the Nirvana album. I'll I'll work just as hard. I promise. All right, sure, that would be fantastic. Thinking of relearning piano, so you know, like maybe I'll like whip out some piano songs or something somehow. Um, who knows what they'll be about with piano and poker? Like that sounds like the name of an album, I guess. Hey, um, I can think of I can think of several very accomplished piano playing poker players. That's really random. I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, it's a, it seems to be the go-to instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Martin Bradstreet, the Magic Ninja, he's a you know, former PLO pro. He's a he's a terrific uh, piano player. He put records out for a while under the name Alexei Martov. Um, which was the name of a fictional composer 
that he, uh, when he was a kid, he was like playing some outlandish thing on the piano and he was asked what it was. And it was just some improvisation of his. And he said, oh, it's, it's a piece by Alexei Martov, <laughs> you know, because that sounded very serious. And then he just, gra- he just went with it. And that was his like nom de musique from, from then on. And our mutual friend, Brandon Shaq Harris is a terrific piano player and uh, he actually owns the piano that used to live used to reside in the studio that i own in chicago electrical audio in his apartment in las vegas he has this nelson and wigan grand piano that he uh, that formerly was in our studio b okay i had no idea yeah i guess this who would have thought all right well i guess i'll be the third piano playing folk there you go why not or maybe you, can, you guys can crank out some piano trios Sure. Well, it sounds like your approach to making money from music is kind of similar to, it doesn't sound like it's exactly similar to, uh, to cash games to um, where, whereas the tournament players would be the ones trying to uh, get a big once in a while. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, they work hard and they don't make anything a lot of the time. (laughs) Although I have to wonder what is the difference between a really good album and one that's just an album i would think that like what the how would a musician determine the difference what is the difference well i mean obviously those metrics are different for everybody but um in my mind a successful session is one where the the band came in with a conception of what they wanted their music to sound like and when they left they were satisfied that they got that result like the the record sounds the way they imagined it would and it or and it sort of elevated the music in the way that they thought that the recording process would. To me, that's successful. However, whether that record is ever released or not, whether anybody buys it or not, um, in the in the sort of world of commerce that's attached to music, um, success has many, many, many different meanings. And the independent level, like the 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 circles that I travel in, where you've got independent bands funding their own projects or very small labels operating as peers to the bands where the budgets are very low and everything operates on a very efficient scale. If a record breaks even, uh, that's okay. If it makes some money so that there's a return from it, that's good. If it makes enough to, if it finds an audience so that it sustains itself and becomes a perennial seller, then that's the best possible outcome is that a record will stay in print and catalog and selling to a new audience every few years. You know? well, what I'm saying is like, well, of course, but what would it be that someone would work hard on an album that would make it potentially a perennial bestseller versus, you know, just. Yeah, the- that stuff is yeah. random. Uh, yeah. So why not, why would they not just do the law of large numbers? Like that would be far more reliable than. Well, there, there are some people, there are some artists there are some artists who operate on that basis. There is a, um, there's a, a friend of mine, um, a garage rock guy named Ty Siegel um, in California. And he has, he has been in a dozen or more bands and puts records out like, like, you know, the way some of us have hot breakfasts, he'll put a record. He just like, whenever it's a good idea comes to him, he makes a record out of it and puts it out. And, so he's amassed an enormous discography, like many, many, many records. And I, I happen to think he's quite good, but, and, but I think that's secondary to the idea that he is just going to express himself to like 
completely. Um, and there's a there was a guy named Bob Pollard, who was the songwriter for a group called Guided by Voices um, out of Ohio. Uh, I want to say Columbus, Ohio, or maybe Dayton. Yeah, Dayton, Ohio. And uh, that that band was notorious for playing like 50 song sets when they'd play a show. Like they were just just endless streams of songs, song after song after song. And, uh, you know, many, many, many records. Uh, the records all have a bunch of songs on them. And the idea being that if you just get every idea off your chest, some of them are going to resonate with other people. Uh, and it's hard to have a really high batting average when you do things that way. But just in terms of, you know, ultimately producing something of quality, I think that's a, a pretty reasonable approach. Sure. Okay. Well, I would think that there's some pretty consistent themes with what resonates with people. You keep it really simple. That's the first thing. Talk about love. Talk about hurt. <laughs> talk about uh, uh, being mad at the, some shitty job. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. And we're talking. I, I don't. I, there have been a lot of attempts. There have been a lot of attempts to sort of codify the craft of songwriting in this way, where you can like, like you come up with. Uh, a theme and then a way to explore the theme and then uh, something, you know, some way to accent an aspect of that theme. Like there is, there is a kind of, there are, there are manuals that you can get about songwriting to how to write effective songs. Yeah. And there are workshops and study groups from people that will teach you how to write effective songs or improve your songwriting. The tell that all of that is bullshit is that the people writing these books and, se and selling these seminars and stuff, are not themselves bajillionaire songwriters, right? Mm -hmm. That what they're doing is they're 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 exercising their perspective on songwriting in the hopes that it resonates with other people mm -hmm. uh, from a place of presumed authority, you know. Uh, and I think that's you, I think you can learn something from these people and their perspectives, but I don't, I, but there's just, there is no playbook. There's no way that you can, that, you know, there's no, Weird. I feel like there must there's be no way that you can, you can tell that something is going to be good uh, or is going to be popular until it becomes good or popular. I've heard something similar in the uh, movie industry. You be, there's no real like science to it, but I imagine there's like a pattern to the emotions. I mean, that's, I mean, I would think that, well, that's partly why there's music in movies is to, I guess, to uh, and accentuate the patterns to the emotions. But um, I mean, it depends on the music, of course. Uh, but it appears that no one really is good at predicting what will be a hit and what won't. It's very, I don't know, just very mysterious, even though people can feel it, even though they can't, they can't, uh, what's the word, describe it. Well, I think in any matter of taste, in any matter of aesthetics in particular, uh, taste, the expression of the creative impulse, all of those things, what people respond to is uh, something unique, right? So when I hear a piece of music that stimulates me and makes me wanna to listen to it again, one of the things that makes me wanna to listen to it again is that it's baffling to me. Like it's slightly, it surprises me. Sure. Um, and by default, you know, just by definition, if something is novel and surprising, then it hasn't been done according to a program or a pattern that could have been taught to them. You know, like the, the people who did it were 
pursuing something unique and pursuing some unique, uh, you know, they had an idea or, or, or a perspective that occurred to them uniquely and they're expressing it honestly, which is the kind of thing that can only come from a single place. Like you have these unique moments of inspiration and creativity. Uh, and that's, you know, by definition, that's not something that comes out of the craft, you know? Now there are very crafty songwriters. Like there are people who have studied music in its forms and idioms and execute music as a craft in that way that I quite respect. Like I, I really admire, there's a songwriter named Robbie Fultz, who's a friend of mine and I, I've worked with him a bunch. Um, but he is very conscious of all of these formal um, things, like, you know, how many verses there are in a, in a given piece of music or what kind of musical interlude there should be between this part and that part, like, and uh, paying heed to traditional forms and that sort of stuff. So I, I'm not saying that that kind of thinking is valueless. I'm just saying that what strikes me as uniquely valuable and interesting is something that I've never heard before that's somehow engaging. And, and, and that's just not going to come from that sort of uh, formal craftsmanship where things are done according to a program. Sure. Okay, yeah, I can see how that makes sense. That was a good way of describing the ineffable. Um, wasn't, I was not coming on this podcast thinking we were going to attempt to describe the ineffable. Um, okay. I want to ask more about your, uh, what, what was your focus? Um, or should I say, I should say, what was your, did you have like a general theme of what you like to play in your music or like a message that you'd like to send? Um, um I mean? in my uh in my bands our our process has always been to pursue whatever interests us at the moment uh, uh so there's no, there so there's no strict definition to it there was in the band big black which is the band i uh, i was in in my 20s um that that band very definitely had a, a, pers a perspective a kind of a central conceit um, a lot of the music was quite jarring. Uh, a lot of the subject matter was quite uh, shocking. And the idea behind that band was to break down or, or, or invalidate this notion that uh, some people were inherently better than other people and that some people were inherently worse than other people. The, the central conceit of it was that we are all capable of an enormous range of behavior and some of it is downright atrocious and we're all capable of that because we're all fundamentally the same we're the same species in the same way that any dog can be trained to heal and take a shit uh, on outdoors rather than indoors um, any person could be driven by circumstances or by uh, incentives Sure. behave in a way that was abhorrent sure in the same way that that every person is capable of feeling affection and and love and uh communion in some some way with other people that that this idea that there are specifically good people and specifically bad people 
the central conceit of Big Black is that that we are all the same animal and sure. that we're all capable of this range of behavior. And sometimes that means we need to acknowledge that we are capable of horror. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that ne- means that we need to acknowledge the humanity of someone who has committed some kind of horror. Sure. And that, that, you know, we need to value that person in the same, with the same regard as a person who hasn't. Um, because the distinction is in the behavior. The distinction is not in the inherent value of the person. So that was sort of the central conceit of that band. It's difficult for me to articulate, but while we were doing it, like it was very obvious to us that people had these sort of facades and public images that were in no way representative of their true nature. And that their true nature would often reveal itself in these really under extreme tension or pressure. And when their nature revealed itself, it turns out everybody can be pretty base, you know? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't experience a lot of the, or at least a lot of time, many of the extremes of, uh, there's a lot of possibilities a lot of people don't experience basically. And of course, you know, if ever, probably every, almost everyone, I mean, there may be a few exceptions. I, um, you know, like, He's like Buddha or someone who uh, <laughs> would basically do any, something horrible under the, like the right circumstances if like something really crazy would happen. Uh, it seems like a really dark message, but also a really, it seems like there's a positive message in that, in that, you know, you, it's possible to have empathy for a lot of these people that have. Exactly. And, and also it kind of discourages the sort of, pretextual judgmentalism that is so revel- so rife in our society. Like you see a, a person and from their manner of dress or the way they speak, you make a, a thousand assumptions about that person. Sure. Uh, and those, those thousand assumptions in some cases are based on, you know, misconceptions and, or based on just like crude prejudices that you have. And uh, I think like reducing that judgmental, uh, instinct impulse like quieting that impulse to be judgmental about somebody based on limited information i think that's valuable i think that's uh, i think that's a, a, a laudable uh, goal right and um i can say specifically that punk rock changed me in that it put me in the company of miscreants and misfits and criminals and queers and like it put me in the company of a lot of people that I would not otherwise have rubbed elbows with. And it taught me the value of those people. It taught me that those people could be creative geniuses. They could be ambitious. Uh, They could be empathetic and they could have these like warm relationships with other people and they could be trusted comrades, you know, Mm -hmm. despite the fact, or, I mean, I guess it means that those, the, like the, the external description of them as people um, becomes irrelevant at that point. And it made me an open, more open-minded person. It made me more accepting of other people and their perspectives and their tastes and their, you know, like if somebody has something to say, I, I'm not going to dismiss it because I think that person is of a certain type. Uh, it's, it's incumbent on me to take other people seriously then. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is, uh, that is cool to, to see that. Uh, and I, I certainly believe there's good and bad to everyone. And, and definitely the idea of, you know, people who 
aren't necessarily thought of as like upstanding citizens being, you know, incapable of doing good or greater imaginative things is wildly inaccurate. I mean, certainly there's, yeah. there's certainly like, cases in the extreme of the opposite also. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to whitewash it and say that everybody in the underground and every creep that you meet is actually a, a, a solid person. But I mean, a good example is the way the sort of general public perception of gamblers as degenerates and criminals and things like that. And you contrast that with the way, um, like specifically within the poker community, like in every tightly knit group of poker players, there are people that everyone knows are completely trustworthy. And they're trustworthy to an extent that you would not extend trust to someone in a business relationship, for example. That is true. Like I've been in circumstances. <laughs> business yeah. business I mean, bad. oh man. Yeah. So uh, I noticed from the little thing here that it says we have less than a minute. And yeah, does that mean that? I was going to let you finish. Well, anyway, I'm just, my point being that from our experience in the poker community, we know that people can be honorable and trustworthy uh, to an extreme degree and that the external perception of them as being degenerate gamblers has no bearing on that. All right. So the idea, a um, couple things. Firstly, it seems like the areas of your life are kind of, uh, they're just, they're like, it seems like they evolve differently. Let's put it that way. All Yeah, I mean, there, there are... There are very specific areas of my life that don't interact with each other. Like me being a musician and in a band doesn't really other. I mean, it informs it somewhat, but it doesn't really have any bearing on me being a recording engineer or professional in the studio that way. Um, my being a card player doesn't really have any bearing on any of the other aspects of my life. Like, yeah, it's a bit different for me. I'm a little, uh, a lot of what I'm doing has quite a theme to it. Um, and the theme of this podcast is helping the world win, which I, uh, which in my mind, uh, some of the things that you're doing are aimed in that direction um, with, I personally think that putting a stop to uh, corruption in whatever form it takes, such as um, just, just uh, people in power uh, imposing their greed on people that are less not in power um, is one of those ways, obviously helping uh, or even getting the word out that in a place, you know, in a, well, in a scene where there's free speech about corrupt music organizations, uh, greedily uh, taking money from the music, the, the artists uh, helps a little bit, put a stop to it. Um, but even more than that, I understand, uh, well, even I want to back up a second, because even I think the act of making something for your wife is actually even in that same direction, if you think about it, because if you imagine kind of relationships that you, everyone would prefer would be relationships where you're both doing each other nice things, and the act of doing something like that while you know, it's, it's helpful for the relationship in the first place. I don't think a lot of people are necessarily thinking like that. Well, I think a decent amount of people are, but not, not a lot of people see like the significance in these kinds of gestures. Um, and even more so, like the more that people do these kinds of things, I think the more that it helps to uh, 
just helps relationships on the whole. I think even small gestures like that have an impact basically. Uh, I mean, that sort of touches on something that we spoke about, not on the podcast, but we spoke about on the phone where um, a lot of people see the world as transactional and as a, um, as a series of nested incentives and, uh, and trade-offs where they're sort of making deals in every aspect of their life. And that sort of capitalist mentality, in my opinion, sort of poisons human relationships. Uh, and a, a lot of people see things in that way, like even, it, even in, a, in a kind of a subconscious way, like, well, I do these nice things for those people because they will then return the favor and do nice things for me. Like even something as casual as that sort of creates a market for being decent. And that's, that reduces everything into this kind of capitalist mindset. And I'm just fundamentally not a capitalist. I don't believe in the idea that value for me is extracted from a transaction with you. Like, I don't feel like that, like, I don't feel like the way the world should work is from each of us trying to game the other, like everybody trying to like get the most we can out of our relationships with other people. It, and sure. and in this sort of a, a cycle of exploitation, I just don't, I don't see the world that way. Sure. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm fundamentally not a capitalist in that regard. And I feel like a better way to approach things is like deriving satisfaction from being good to somebody else is, I mean, just being good to somebody else is rewarding for me. It makes me feel good. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that's reason enough to do it. I don't need it to be a transaction. I don't need it to be that I will be nice to you in the hopes that you will be nice to me or in the expectation that you'll be nice to me. Um, just because me doing something decent for somebody else is, in, is intensely satisfying. Um, and my, one of the, one of the biggest things in my life that I get that kind of satisfaction from is this charity that my wife runs. Mm -hmm. My wife, Heather Winna, um, runs a charity called Poverty Alleviation Charities. Um, you can find them at unconditionalgiving.org uh, on the internet and the World Wide Web. Um, but it, it's an outgrowth of a thing that she was doing very informally on her own, where she would go to the post office and read letters addressed to Santa Claus uh, that were from heads of households or whatever, uh, you know, just it, writing in pure desperation not having any other resources uh, or any other place to turn to, they would write a letter to Santa Claus and explain the depths of their problem. And then she would raise money and we would try to satisfy some of these letters. And that, be, that grew into a, an annual program called the Letters to Santa Project. And Letters to Santa was um, funded largely by the uh, improv theater community in Chicago and um, donations that were um, gotten through. There was a, a, a marathon show every year, a 24 hour improv comedy show that was done as a fundraiser to benefit the project of Letters to Santa. And it eventually became a, 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 
uh, tradition where musicians and other guests would come and people would perform some some would stay on stage for all 24 hours and uh, people would donate money during the course of the show the proceeds from selling tickets to the show there would be auctions for example uh, Jeff Tweedy was a uh, who's a very close friend of he's in the band Wilco um, and he would auction off a Wilco concert a private concert uh, and word got out amongst all the very deep nerds of the Wilco fan community. And so the, this annual show, the, the marathon show, became a kind of a, a gathering of Wilco nerds who would then compete with each other to outbid each other for this Wilco private concert. And that raised us an extraordinary amount of money, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a pop uh, for, these, uh, for the, the charity. And what the charity does with the money, sorry? Raise money for the charity exactly? I'm sorry, say that again? Was it, was it raised because Wilco decided that he wanted to basically raise money for the charity and he just- Yeah, exactly. Jeff, as a friend, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to donate a show and we'll see how much money we can get out of it. Well, that was one of the ideas that I was hoping to do in the sense or that embodies it was basically to somehow get people to start competing to use that element of competition in a way that gets people to start competing to do good, if that makes sense, to compete for something in yeah. that um, that uh, is some kind of value. I mean, that's the whole the whole concept of the charity auction is that you have some glittering prize that um, that people with money would would want, and you get them, you play them against each other, and the the proceeds going to the charity. Uh, you know, between themselves, they're having a little competition um, that the charity then is just the beneficiary of. Sure. sure. Okay. Well, that was so not- this yeah. this project has been going from you know 25 years now, and Heather has given uh, the the way it works is that the overhead of the charity is covered by um, uh, by patrons who specifically cover the overhead of the charity. And so all of the donated money, like any money that's donated by a person to the charity, a hundred percent of that goes into the hands of a needy family. Um, It started in Chicago and we principally do Chicago families, but we've also done families in Oakland, California, because one of the benefactors lives in Oakland and was, and helped facilitate it. Um, So we basically, um, we raise money and give it to poor people every year. That that's the whole that's the whole charity. Awesome. And uh, well, do not raise money for the expenses as well. How do you cover the expenses for making all this happen? Like I said, the expenses are either like, like the the theater, for example, would donate the space for the the oh. perfor- for the theater, or um, there are specific patrons who pay for things like. Um, the cost of upkeep in the office, the office is in our home. So it's very modest. Um, but you know, there are, there are some costs in running the office. Um, the, the salaries for like Heather gets paid a small salary and the, uh, Holly, the woman that works with her gets paid a small salary. And those were covered by, uh, a, an endow- sort of an endowment donation. Um, and so the, the overhead for the charity is taken out of the, uh, taken off the back of the donated pool of funds. So it's an extremely efficient charity in that regard. That, that is, if, you're, if you give a dollar, 
then you know that that dollar is going unmolested into the hands of a poor person that needs it. That's very inspiring. Yeah, it's very unique in comparison to a lot of the charities out there. Uh, that's pretty much the goal of my foundation as well, is, is to not fall into the trap of many of the bigger corporations that put a lot of their money into not so, or take, they basically take a lot of the money that's obviously. Yeah, a lot of charities that operate, uh, uh, sort of operate for the benefit of the people operating the charity and not for the, the, the supposed beneficiaries of the charity. Like they're operated like sort of like small businesses where it's like, yeah, we help these people, but most of the money that comes in goes to pay the operate for the operation of the charity. That's a, a, a inefficient model that is used for things that are charities in name only. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I find that distasteful, but I also, you know, that's, that's part of this mentality that we were describing where people think of everything as a, as a deal. And it's like, well, that's the deal. You know, if you want us to do this, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have to be compensated for it, you know, like that, that it's part of the idea of thinking of things in terms of uh, deals and transactions and incentives, rather than thinking of things in, in terms of the way that we should be treating each other and what, you know, what is it, what would be a proper dispensation of these funds, you know? Mm -hmm. I personally suspect that capitalism is necessary. At least competition is necessary in some kind of way. But I wouldn't, it's too hard to like determine what the real solution of what that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I run a small business. I appreciate that the notion of, you know, operating a business at a profit is a, you know, that's a, that's a, a reasonable way to structure businesses. What I don't like about capitalism is the, the emphasis on growth rather than an emphasis being on sustainability. Like in, in a capitalist, in a capitalist paradigm, if your business isn't constantly getting bigger, then it's a failure, you know, uh, because the people who have invested in it are not, are not getting more and more are not extracting more and more from it. Right. That's the the function of a business in a capitalist mind is to generate money for the shareholders. And the, the way I see it is the, the function of a coffee shop is to sell coffee to people. And the function of a recording studio is to make records. Right. And the, as long as we can keep the lights on, then it's a, it's a ringing success. And I don't particularly care how much profit we make in the process and, and, or, or if we make a profit, a, a profit, you know, I've, I described, uh, I had a, a, a sort of a disagreement with a relative of mine who was like, who asked me how things were going at, at the studio. And I said, you know, they're going great. We're making a lot of records. Uh, we've survived a very long time. I'm not making very much money, but I'm super happy. And he said, well, if you're not making much, very much money, well, then, it, then you know, obviously you're doing something. There's something that you could improve on. You know, there's something you could do better. I was like, not really like we're really fucking cranking it out you know i'm very happy with it and his notion of a business was that the business only existed to generate profit no right right that doesn't make sense like why would that's like saying the in my mind that's like saying the, the purpose of existence is to make money like how fucking ridiculous would that be i mean it's very it's a very close parallel 
uh, and the way I see it is like, you know, the, the purpose of our business is to make records for people. And uh, if I, and every now and again, we have to make a profit, otherwise we go broke, you know? Sure. So we, we are gonna have to turn a profit here and there, but the way I think of it is sort of like breathing, right? Like you have to breathe once in a while or you die, right? Yeah. But the purpose of your life is not breathing. Like that's not why you're on earth. That's not the thing that you, that animates you every morning. Oh, I get to get up and breathe all day. <laughs> that's not, it's just a, it's a necessary component, but it's certainly not the reason that you get out of bed. It's not the thing that drives the, that, that is the, the whole rationale for doing it. Yeah, no, I'm pretty much on board with that. And um, as an added thought, when profit becomes the priority at the expense of values and uh, well, at the expense of sustainability, as you said, which implies at the expense of uh, values, it ends up hurting the overall system in the long run ends up hurting. Well, it events, it ends up taking a toll. Let's put it that way on things that people care about as it should, because you're, you're yeah, I think away from I, something else to make money. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, we have seen that capitalists are remarkably willing to allow other people to suffer the consequences of their capitalism. Like, oh, <laughs> like the, fact that it, the fact that it will eventually cause enormous consequences and suffering, that's not really a, a deal breaker. <laughs> well, that's, that's where, you know, until it hurts the whole planet and that kind of thing comes into play, you know, that's when uh, it hurts them. And I mean, it usually it finds ways to eventually hurt people when they do such things, but uh, it's hard to really get people to see that. That's the point of the podcast to get people to see it, to get people to see it. Part of the point, um, figuring that part out is a little tricky until before it's too late. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Shout out to your charity for, uh, your wife's charity letters yeah. what's called right Letter, letters to santa is the the principal program of the charity okay. um it's cool. been sort of memorial it's been sort of um uh i don't know how to how to describe it it's been references have been made to this project in a, a bunch of public things like that there was a ted lasso episode where um, they were answering letters to, to Santa. And that was a direct reference to the project that my wife started. Um, Jason Sudeikis is a friend of Heather's and has performed at the, at the marathon show. Um, the TV show 30 Rock did an episode about letters to Santa. And a lot of the performers from 30 Rock are also Second City people and they have performed at the Letters to Santa 24 hour show. And uh, if you're interested, if you're curious about the charity, if you're curious about the project, um, the charity website is letter is uh, there's letters to Santa.com will bring you to the annual um, 24 hour show, which is only happens once a year. Uh, but unconditionalgiving.org is the address web address of the charity. And the charity is called poverty alleviation charities. Okay. Uh, poverty alleviation charities. All right. Well, shout out for giving 100% of the donated money to the people that need it. A rare example in the charity world. And 
Yeah, great job. Anything else you'd like to talk about, uh, Steve? Um, I, I think the card game Archie is extremely overrated. Okay, I'm a, I agree with you. No more Archie. Yeah, I, th I think it's one of the dumbest of mixed games. Okay. Um, I think Badesi and Badusi are also very dumb, but um, some people who really love those games uh, are very good for the game, very good to have in the game, so I'm fine with them. Okay, I haven't played them much. Uh, they're quite slow. I don't really like when they're in yeah. there. It, they take a very long time. Those rounds take a really long time. Yeah, yeah. We're against long rounds, guys. No more long rounds of poker. It'll help the world. So there's a thing. This is I'm curious about this. There's a thing where uh, when you're playing rounds in a mixed game, there's a thing they call San Diego where your blinds are posted and you're in for the whole round. Um, or you're, if you know, there's a button ante and the button antes, and then as the button moves about everybody, you're, you're in for the whole round and you pay yeah. your antes regardless. Um, that's the way all of the mixed games in Chicago operated and the, all the private mixed games in Chicago operated. And uh, I think it's a little insulting that it's called San Diego rather than Chicago. A little I'll, bit. I'll start crawling in Chicago when I'm uh, Chicago style. Okay. When I'm uh, in Vegas or in California or wherever it's played. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun talking to you. Mm -hmm. yeah, and thanks for being on the show, Steve. It's been a great chat. And uh, good luck with the charity and with Shellac and everything else you're doing. Well, thank you. And uh, are you going to make it to the World Series, this, uh, World Series of Poker, I should specify, this year? I'm pretty sure I will, but you never know. I, my schedule keeps changing and there's always some sort of surprise coming up. So probably, right. yes. I'll, be, I'll be there for, uh, I'll be there for 10 days or so to play a few of the mixed game events. Maybe I'll see you. All right, sir. Sounds good. Hope to see you there, Steve. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Winning the Game of Life. Tune in next week for another great episode. Of course, hit subscribe and follow Dan on Instagram at the Dan Cates.